Yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, I want you to save your energy for this Washington Post article. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> well, hey, everybody. It's, uh, what is it? It's November 1st, and it's at Percussion. Uh, what episode is it, y'all? I don't remember. Anybody? Maybe start over. <laughs> Just tell me. I actually don't have it down. I usually do. <laughs> 260. 260. It's episode 260. I got it. So it's episode 260. It's Casey Cangelosi. It's uh, Ben Charles. Hi, everybody. It's Carly Vina. Hey, Casey. Hey, how was your uh, aphasia performance? You you performed at something recently, right? I did, yeah. I, I, I played a pre-recorded recording of aphasia for it was like this women's gathering um last weekend it was pretty interesting i'm not sure that anybody knew what they were in for when they showed up for that that i was being active of this meeting but i would get interesting questions with aphasia i had a percussion ensemble concert here and i had a student that was just playing a really good aphasia and i opened the concert with it just like center spotlight and it was really really effective like if i ever have someone playing it that good again I'm going to do that again. It's really cool. Recruit Carly, yeah, then. Awesome. Yeah, Carly, you want to get another DMA? What else am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> also, Ksenia Komnovanovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. How's it going? Hey, Casey. Kangalosi, hi. Why are you so mean to me, Ksenia? I have to. I have to. Sorry. It's an urge. It's instinct. Hey, so a couple of things happened. I found, um, actually, it's uh, we're releasing on December 10th. It's uh, my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, Chris. And in 2010, Bob Dylan's handwritten lyrics for a song, The Times They Are A-Changing, sold at auction, $422,500, so nearly half a million dollars, which I really thought was interesting because we reported on a, a John Lennon handwritten one that sold at auction also for far, far, far less. So I thought that kind of went along with mm. that. And also, 1937 is a first performance. William Grant Still's Second Symphony, his symphony in G minor, was premiered by the Philadelphia Orchestra, Stokowski conducting. We've talked about William Grant Still before, but I dug a little deeper for some fun facts because I didn't want to be duplicative in the uh, um, news because we have talked about him, I think, actually on December 10th as well because we've made a full year um, of news now. So the symphony subtitle is Song of a New Race, and it's the second symphony in the first three. He's got five total. And this three trilogy, it's all, um, it's all part of what is his um, – he, he's a big advocate and active participant in the Harlem Renaissance, which is this big black culture movement in New York City. So all this black culture is happening, and it was called the Harlem Renaissance. And these three symphonies, along with a lot of other titles, are some of William Grant Still's big contributions to that. Some other fun facts, he studied at Oberlin. He listed, enlisted excuse me, in the Navy halfway through his studies at Oberlin. And at the time, black sailors were restricted to food service duties only. But because of his talent on the violin, he was asked to perform at meals for the officers and got out of his regular uh, food duties. He studied with Verez for two years and is a twice-in-a-row Guggenheim recipient. And he was the director of what was called Black Swan Records. He was the director of the classical division and later the music division of this record company that promoted a lot of jazz and classical black artists. So, yep, December 10th, that was his uh, first performance and some fun facts about William Grant still. Cool. Good job. Thank you. So there's your news. 
And our guest today, y'all, she's a performer who focuses on supporting continued growth of new music and has expertise in contemporary classical and African A-way percussion. Abby, you must have went to Lawrence Conservatory, is that right? Yep, that's correct. I think I thought so, and I th- I figure okay, you're African A-way drumming. Yeah, everyone there learns that with Dane, right? That's yes. really cool, and I do believe that's where I met you for the first ever. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I remember uh, seeing you in a practice room during uh, the Zeltzman Merba Festival. You know, right. you were working on whatever crazy Merba uh, repertoire you're doing those days, and uh, oh, I, I, yeah, I remember a very pleasant interaction with you. Yeah. Oh, well, cool. Well, Surprisingly. Good. Well, thank you. Oh, there it is. There it is. Why are you so mean, Ksenia? Well, also, you can hear Abby on a TEDx talk at Stony Brook in New York. She's played at Transplanted Roots Symposium in Australia and Mexico, New Music Gathering in Baltimore and Boston, among many others. So, hey, how's it going, Abby Fisher? Welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to get in talking with you guys about these uh, articles and, um, you know, whatever else we get to yeah sure 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 i was gonna ask how like you know thinking way back when you were just a student there and you were participating in the zeltzman festival and a cool thing about lawrence conservatory i've heard several people say and i believe it was julia Gaines said it on this show she said her degree from lawrence has greatly appreciated meaning like she went to the school when, okay, it was like an all right school or whatever, but now like all these really, really excellent people from Lawrence are out in the world. And I guess the the quality of the program is just greatly, greatly improved. Like people like yourself, people like our buddy, Mike Truesdell. Um, what was, what was, I don't know, tell us a little about studying with Dane and just your time at Lawrence. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the best decisions I made. I was I'm so thrilled and that I was able to go through that program. Um, Dane was uh, in, really difficult on us. You know, he was he's one of I think an old school type of professor where he expects a lot and he shows it. Um, uh, you know, he's tough on his students, uh, but it gives results. And uh, he, you know, he said he's a teddy bear inside, but in rehearsals. He's yelling at you, and um, you know he. You are can be scared to show up to rehearsal, but that means that you're going to learn your part, and you're you know you're going to bring it, bring all you have to that rehearsal. Um, and having you know his background in so many different areas uh, in LA music, in Afro-Cuban music, in Brazilian music, we were required to learn all these different types of um, genres uh, from different all different parts of the world. Um, starting out as a freshman it wasn't like oh you can like pick and choose if you want to do away music if you want to do brazilian music no you know you had to do that right away freshman year and so that had a huge influence on me i came into lawrence uh you know i hadn't even been in a percussion ensemble really before Uh, my high school program was did not have a great uh, music program Um, we had band and some marching band but uh, not a strong percussion program at all. And so I was just, you know, thrown into this, not even, you know, percussion ensemble plus. And um, so that, yeah, that was really amazing to go through that and, and have Dane as a teacher. Cool. I had a, sort of a follow-up question to that. One thing that, that interests me is it seems like in college we're exposed to so many different things. And I was fortunate also to have a lot of world music in my undergraduate experience. And then as you get out into the professional world, partially for lack of instruments, I don't own any gamelan instruments myself, and then partially just an economy of, of time, um, 
I find that I haven't been able to maintain most of my world music skills all that much uh, since college. Have you found the same thing? And how? And I can certainly um, cite different ways that, for example, studying Indian music has improved my perception of rhythm, even if I don't actively study Indian music before. So what are some ways that, that you've carried this with you both directly and indirectly? Yeah, what you just said at the end, it, you know, it, it really affects you're playing, even if you don't actually play gamelan later on, you know, it's still deeply affected you as a musician during that time and moving forward. So it's not a total loss, you know, if you're not going to be a gamelan player your whole life um, or even a year after you leave school. Uh, but that being said, um, Elway music that was out of, you know, all the different styles that we were able to study and that we, you know, were kind of required to study, that was the one that I was interested and kind of went with the most. And um, I went to Ghana the year before my senior year during sorry during the summer before my senior year and uh, I purchased some drums from there and got those home on the plane and that was a whole experience and um, so I had the idea that you know I would want to continue playing this music after I left school so I wanted to get my own drums but it's a a group um, music, you know, you have to play with an ensemble and that's part of the problem that you're also describing, you know, you need the instruments and you need the players. And that's a lot, that's a problem that a lot of us have as percussionists, not just if we're talking about world music, but just playing with other, um, percussionists in general, if we want to play ensemble music, we have to figure out a space and we have to figure out the people we want to play with. If we move to, if we move to a new city, okay, we got to find new people that we, you know, can vibe with. Um, and so, yeah, there's been parts um, after school, after leaving Lawrence, that I've had periods of time when I uh, did not play Edway music for a, a stretch, and then I kind of had to relearn it again. Uh, when I went to Stony Brook, um, I relearned a lot of the music that I had lost, uh, and I'm really thankful for that. This woman, Faith Cognac, she started up a group at Stony Brook. And um, my second semester there, all of a sudden I saw a bunch of Elway drums in the percussion room. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I met the woman who, you know, just started the group and I was able to work with her and help out with a little bit of helping with teaching the group, but mostly just learning from her. And um, so, yeah, I did lose a lot of what I had learned, but then playing with the gr a group again, brought some of that back. And then since leaving Stony Brook uh, three years ago, you know, I'm once again, not playing with um, other people, uh, playing out with music with other people. And um, a couple months ago, um, I uh, started working with Brian Smith, who you guys have interviewed as well. And um, he also went to Stony Brook and was uh, taking um, the same class with Faith Cognac. Um, and I was like, I really want to retain more of this away music, even if we're not together. Uh, can we figure out some way to work together? And we've been um, meeting once a week and recording the different parts so that we can just have them to refer to when we want to teach it again. Um, and it's just been good to talk with him and try to kind of get ourselves back into the music, even if we're not playing together and we're not actually in the same room. Very cool. Very cool. Do you think you took some of that Dane Richardson, like you said, kind of old school, I don't know, <laughs> tough, tough teaching? Did you take some of that with you? Um, Do you use it on your students? I think I want to, I want to think that I did, but 
I, I think I'm a lot nicer and um, yeah, I, I'm definitely not as tough as he was. I, I think I expect a lot of people, but uh, not as, you know, gruff about it. Sure. Yeah. sure. <laughs> I have a, just a quick funny story about, about uh, old school teaching and I won't name any names, but I know of a percussion professor, older percussion professor, very well respected that uh, toward the end of his career, uh, he was in a percussion ensemble re rehearsal and just, you know, wasn't going well. And it, he like just got mad and he left and he slammed the door shut and the door got stuck. And this is before anyone had cell phones. <laughs> and so the entire percussion ensemble was stuck in the rehearsal room. Awesome. And to compound matters, the Wind Symphony had a recording session that afternoon. And so the Wind Symphony showed up to record and not only was there no percussion equipment set up? There were no percussionists there and no one knew where they were. <laughs> but was everyone just like, yeah, sorry, our professor threw a tantrum like a child. And, uh... <laughs> yeah. I just want to, I just want to say that I absolutely adore Dane. Oh yeah. I've so, every, yeah. I owe everything to him. So. Oh, he's so awesome. There's that side note. <laughs> yeah, he's like so, so wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, what do you got there? Ksenia? Um, I was just going to ask, do y'all believe in tough love when teaching? How do you approach it? I mean, obviously there are there are levels of niceness, but when do you employ tough love if, if you do? I mean, to an extent, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's hard. I, I, it's like you, you can only change them for so long. Like like you like four years is the longest. I mean, unless they're doing multiple degrees with you or whatever. It's like I think it's really hard to permanently. You can definitely impact people for four years, but like you hope they take take it with them. You know, like whatever whatever you do, like too much tough love or whatever. Yeah, they just want to like get away from this all. But it sounds like like Abby's describing like just the right amount. You know, like like change them enough where they they take it away and they want to like keep doing this and they're fueled to do it more. And so I like everything. It's a balance, I guess. Yeah, for me, Casinia, the thing is trying trying to how hard you can push you know turning students away like who needs how much tough love today and you know next week and let's you know just have to be like yeah i understand these are the things you're going through but also here are the standards this is what you need to do um so yeah that's that's just trying to figure out that balance that casey's mentioning the how hard can you put while also being reasonable and you know we don't want to make or feel terrible yeah. Well, you want them to adopt a culture, like you want them to have a culture that they take with them. And if, if the only reason they're doing something is because someone's breathing down their neck and yelling at them, it's like, well, that person won't be there when they leave. So if that's the mandatory ingredient, well, that's not a permanent solution. It might, it might get results during the time you're with them, but they're not going to take that with them. I try to run my studio like Buddy Rich. <laughs> and that worked great for him. All those people loved him. And kept playing. With I thought it. you were gonna say like the guy from Whiplash. Uh, same thing, really. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, what do you think? Well, what you guys said, absolutely, and um, I think yeah, like having high standards and you know wanting to hold your students at that level, and 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 that those standards mean something to you, like that you as a as an artist and as an educator are you know, performing at that level yourself and you're being a genuine person in all of these things that you're expecting of your students. So I think when someone comes across, you know, and they're just saying like, you know, do this, do this, do this. And then they're not doing those things, 
but you know if they're also doing those things in their professional life and you know you and they're also and also in their personal life you know they're a really good person um that is the way that you know i i want to be and that you know i hope i am and that that's the way that it comes across um when students want to follow their teacher they're usually uh you know a genuinely genuinely good person and they're professionally um you know performing at a high level as well too i also i just look at orchestras and there are certain conductors that are known for doing very well with working with an orchestra and some conductors that are known for having extraordinary performances but constantly being at odds with the orchestra musicians and butting heads with the orchestra musicians uh, and I uh, don't quote me on this but I think it was uh, people said that Zell was like that um, and really really had a lot of conflicts with the orchestra but they said everything he touched turned to gold I think that was who that was. I could be wrong on that. But yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just an interesting thought that you can get results both ways. I, I know the studio I would rather be in is the one with the very supportive professor, but all of my professors, I think, have have touched on both sides of being super supportive and the tough love thing. And um, yeah, I think both, both have a place. Um, I will say that I've never been in a situation where I felt like someone was being tough just for the sake of being tough, just for the sake of being a jerk. Uh, it's always been in my best interest. So, yeah. Yeah, we're lucky. We grew up, um, yeah, when I think a lot of that was over with. <laughs> no no kneeling on, like, corn or anything like that? Yeah, no music stands getting chucked across the room or, yeah, none of the, none of the horror stories, at least for the most part. I mean, I know every once in a while you hear about something like that or someone who's from the old guard still left over or you hear an occasional story, but it, at least it's not the, uh, not the norm. Yeah. Ben, Nancy, man, she would just, uh, one time, one time she put my head in the toilet. You know, they do that. Bullies do that. Yeah. <laughs> put my head in the toilet and then wedgie at the same time. You'll never be as good as pious. <laughs> right. That's exactly what she said. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. So I'll always remember that. I'll take that with me forever. Well, Abby, we, you know, we wanted to, of course, talk a lot about all of the great stuff you've been doing and you do, it seems like you, you've really made a mark with this percussion theater that you do and you do these great like Mark Applebaum recordings and um, I've seen uh, some Terry DeMay of yours and I think I've seen, have I seen, have I seen an aphasia from you? Uh, nope, not aphasia, just the the gun dog on with with uh, Matt Lau is the apple that yep. that apple bomb yeah yeah so anyway we, you know Abby suggested just to kind of keep um, uh, assist this conversation we there's this great little article on percussion theater by Ayun Wong who we've had on the show and it's in the the uh, the Russell Hartenberger Cambridge Companion to Percussion which we've 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 talked about this book a little bit on the show before and I think read at least some things from it but um, yeah Ayun Ayun goes through and. I think she's sort of cataloging like the the core pieces we have in some of the repertoire. And I think it's really cool because every person on this call, I know for a fact, has played one of these pieces. Like table music is listed in here. Aphasia is listed in here. What else is in here? There's Vinko Globokar's Corporal. Like if I think it's pretty clear that this is part of the percussion. Like, what's the word? You know, we have like our little facets of genres inside. Percussion of, canon. Yeah. Inside, sorry, Ben. 
part of the percussion canon. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the percussion canon. canon and on yeah. your, it's like on your recital, you got to do some snare drum, you got to do some mallets, you got to do a multi, and now this is becoming one of those one of those little pieces. I think canon. Sorry, Ben. Canon. This is one of those little pieces of the canon, as we'll say. So I don't know, Abby. Like, like, how did you get so into this? And and what what do you think is is uh, I don't know is where this is going. Yeah, um, I actually wonder if it was the ZMF that that you were at um, that Beverly Johnston was um, part of. Was do you remember her being at that one? I feel like I've done I've done a lot of things with Bev, and I've seen her do fertility rights, and I've seen her do a piece that I do now, which I really like. I've done a couple times called "All Too Consuming" by Diana McIntosh. Yes, which is a badass little it's a good piece. theater piece. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's like you're supposed to be a female performer; it's the voice of a female. But I do it anyway. I just like it so much. So I don't know. I don't know if okay. if, if she was there that one. I think she would have done um, uh, fertility rights. Yeah. So. Uh, I saw her at CMF and um, I was, I had never, you know, met her or um, had really heard of her before. And I was just amazed by her performance and by just all the different pieces that she was playing that, you know, were were quite different than the other CMF performers um, that were doing, you know, more kind of standard, more in the repertoire. And um, I decided that I wanted to go and study with her. And so then I started my master's at least at University of Toronto and, uh, you know, she was my teacher and I took um, all my lessons basically with her. Um, And I I did not finish my DMA there. I ended up going to NYU after that, but um, you know, that year of studying with her was really incredible and she's really influenced um, me a lot. And, you know, that's kind of where it all started was seeing her perform one of her performances at ZMF and, being incredibly inspired by this style or, you know, this genre that I did not know a lot about. I didn't really encounter all that much at Lawrence. Um, I also had seen a Nancy perform The Connection by James Rolfe, which is a piece that I have played a lot. Um, uh, And that was, you know, maybe my sophomore or junior year at Lawrence. And so that was also kind of what was inching me to uh, be curious in text and marimba and yeah. Beverly's so good. Yeah, she's like so, so good. I She's inspired me a ton too. Ben, I think you had a question. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny that Abby just mentioned this. So the only, I, I even did a wonderful job with this article, but the only thing I was disappointed in is I was reading it like, but I know all these pieces. Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to ask two people about two pieces. Uh, one is the one that Abby just mentioned called The Connection by James Rolfe. I saw that you played that on YouTube and I saw Brian Calhoun play that probably 10 years ago at this point. And it was one of those pieces like, why have I never heard of this? Why doesn't this ever get played? And I haven't actually ever seen anyone other than Brian perform it since. And the other piece I wanted to ask about was actually for Ksenia. You just released a, a, an excerpt of your students playing this piece called The Game of the Century by, I can't even find the composer's first name, C. Snow. Um, which was like a super cool piece that I had never heard of. So uh, I guess let's start with Abby. Could you tell us more about the connection? Yeah, um, yeah I should have looked this one up and remembered a little more about it. But um, so I first <laughs> I first saw Nancy play it. So um, yeah, I it kind of came to me from Nancy Zeltzman uh, and probably in probably like 2008 or nine or somewhere around then. And um, I'm trying to remember if it was written for her, but yeah, it's written by James Rolfe. He's a Canadian composer. And um, the text 
is not by him. Uh, it's escaping me, but we could do a quick Google, Google search. It's by, I think, a Russian uh, poet, possibly. Um, and uh, the text is um, uh, not, it's, it's a story. It's, it's, it's supposed to sound narrative. It, you know, it's, it's, it's natural speaking voice. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, I just linked it up. It's by the Russian surrealist writer, Daniil Karms. Right, yes. <laughs> uh, and so yes, surrealist. Um, and so it's it it makes sense like as you're speaking each sentence, but when the whole story comes together, it's not a logical train of events. And, and um, it sounds silly. Um, there's moments that the audience is supposed to laugh. Uh, and so it, it's, I, it's an amazing piece. Um, the marimba part is um, sounds simple on its own, but there's a lot of difficult elements to it. And you're um, doing like a, sort of a bass part in the left hand and then the melody is all in the right hand. Um, yeah, nothing too uh, like, you know, crunchy and um, I, experimental sounding, but it is, I, it's, a, it's difficult to, to play. And then, you know, speaking on top of that, I think is what makes it challenging. I do remember the marimba part had this one part where it was like the the wrist had to twist like 180 degrees constantly, yeah. like something like a this sort of deal. That's what I always picture when I think about this piece, like is that, remembering yeah. that motion. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and it and then you and, and during the during that like if it's you're probably saying something like really like normal, and so it's it's funny because you're doing this like really awkward thing, and you're just like but they're going to the store right now. And so, and then they're going to walk down the street. And so it's, it, that's also what makes it silly is you end up, you start very close, your hands are not doing all that difficult things. And then by the end of it, you're, you're very far apart and it's, it's much more difficult, but uh, yeah, I think more people should play it. I love it. And I've, I've played it throughout the years and I like to bring it back and do it more. Well, what is it, what is it about this theater stuff that, um, that, that you're so drawn to Abby? What is, uh, and what are some of your favorites and did you get any insight from this article? I think like Ben, I thought, oh yeah, these are some of our, our classics, you know, if the timeline of this repertoire begins anywhere, I mean, I guess they're kind of saying, I, I think it's right here. Yeah, I think, um, what the, the connection was one of the first pieces like that I had performed and I, I remember like performing it and um when you're speaking uh and playing like you have to sometimes you're like looking out of the audience or you should be looking out to the people that you're talking to and I was like wow this is such an amazing feeling of actually you know talking to more I felt like I was more connecting to the audience than I had felt in the past as playing percussion, as being a percussionist, where, you know, our instruments are down here and we're maybe looking down at the marimba or looking down at the snare drum, or we're like, you know, in the back in the with the orchestra. Um, so with playing that the connection, that being well, the first kind of piece like this that I did seriously, um, I felt that connection. Like I felt m more of a connection than I had felt before playing a solo repertoire to the audience and that felt really like powerful um, that I was bringing this to people and that I could feel them while I was actually playing. And it just felt more meaningful. It was something that I just wanted to like explore more and do more of because I think because I was just literally looking at them and I could see them and, and uh, I was like, wow, this maybe this is what singers feel like because they're like looking out to the audience and like 
you know, speaking things to people. <laughs> and we, we're not like literally speaking things to people most of the time. But in this case, like, I felt like I could actually tell someone a story while I was playing. Ben, I think you had a part of that question for Ksenia too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say a lot of what you just said about like connecting with audience. I, I've heard Carly say much the same thing. And Carly, I would consider an expert on the topic as well. But yeah, Ksenia, could you tell us about this? Uh, um, this uh, I just lost the name of it. The uh, Not the most dangerous game. Game of the, the century, game of century. Yeah. That, that you play or your students play. Um, well, it. It was something that my students brought up and they said that they wanted to play this. Um, but apparently, I mean, this is like a three minute, uh, tiny, cute piece that gets really intense at some point. Um, but it is supposed to be the actual depiction, sort of, you know, rhythmic musical of the game that happened in the 50s between uh, Bobby Fischer and Donald Byrne. Bobby Fischer, who was a 13 year old genius at the time, who destroyed Donald Byrne. Um, and I mean, the piece, uh, in it besides a chessboard and you know the, all of your well the chess game that you're playing you have the chess clock and you have a metronome or an analog clock that you need to have which again plays the musical role so it's a it's an interesting thing um because uh of course when they're practicing when when we have coaching sometimes figurines just fly all over the place because as they reach you know for something it's so fast and they're supposed to go all over the place i don't know we say we say eat figures but you don't say eat in chess in english what, what do you say in english what do you say it's not eat it's not destroy what do you say what eat. i wish i could tell you <laughs> what do you when you when you check. when you no not check not when you get to the king but Damn it! No, when you when you take someone's figurine, when you eat them, <laughs> there are probably some listeners that right now that are like, "Come on, none of you know this." Please what help mean, me. Just, I live in a different just, country. What, what uh, saying, yeah, what, rook takes rook takes pawn. Yeah, takes takes takes. Yeah, yeah, pawn just takes rook or just that's knocks so off. non-aggressive. Yeah. Knocks off. Okay. No, that's what they say. That's like the official. Yeah, like bishop takes queen or whatever yeah okay well when whatever takes whatever stuff flies all over the place and that's why it's um it's tricky to practice but it's a it's certainly an audience favorite everyone seems to it it seems to be the new table music everyone's like oh this is amazing i i met this kid at interlochen i taught him bobby fisher no the one of the composers uh c snow and he, c. Snow, uh -huh. he just goes by c i forget his first name it was so long ago but he sent me a video of this piece forever ago and he said check out this thing i wrote and i thought it was awesome he's like this actually depicts the chess it's the actual game you know it is yeah. the game like you said yeah and so, well, I, I, yeah yeah very cool i have a question about that piece in particular with with so much of this music and iun's article does such a wonderful job of providing score examples uh there's there's so much notation going on in this and i mean like aphasia has its own notation system that makes sense does the does the chess piece have its own notation system or how like how is it notated so rhythmically it's notated just like a regular thing but above every rhythm you have the actual chess move that you need to make which is fully in chess notation which you must learn oh and then whether you're supposed to exclaim you know check checkmate or whatever um so yeah it's it is uh, i think there's a little bit of a learning curve but they seem to have picked it up pretty quickly and memorized it so it's fun it's fun they seem to be enjoying it and i will say like the nice thing about a piece like that or aphasia or table music is like 
we always love to complain about like, oh, our school doesn't have enough marimbas and it's so hard to sign up and get it. It's like, you can practice aphasia like in your bedroom at home. And it's, <laughs> it's so yeah. nice to be able to just take this stuff home and, and work on it. And with, you know, social distancing stuff right now, it's so nice to be able to get away a bit. Yeah. Certainly. It seems like we need that too. It's like, you can't do a recital of, okay, I'm going to do Safa over here and I'm going to do Zyklus over there. I'm going to do King of Denmark over there. And then it's like, dude, you can't tour with that. You know, um, you can tour with like one of those, you know, you can do tour with like a little piece with playback and a big multi and then yeah, something invisible. Yep. This is a good one. Everyone pick it up. It's cool. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, one of the one of the things I liked so much about this article, um, and I love the whole thing, I could just talk about this stuff all day, but Ian was talking so much about gesture and the different types of gesture and the different purpose of gesture, like instrumental gestures, anything that's required for sound production, or ancillary gestures, more expressive and not necessarily required for sound production. And a lot of times these are just the intuitive ways that we move playing to to help it feel you know, for example, to help it feel like sustain on marimba or to help the note feel shorter and quicker and and those kinds of things. And part of this actually, I think is it, it's a little bit disturbing to me, this study that she talks about with the, the Michael Schutz and Scott Lipscomb study with Michael Burritt. Um, if y'all don't know yeah. about this, listeners at home, check this out, like look this up, read the article. We've had um, him because, on the show, you know. What'd you say? We've had him on the show, Michael Schutz. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, long ago, long ago. But yeah, I, I always have my class listen to a little lecture he has called The Mind of the Listener. So, because I'm so sick of this, like, well, that doesn't affect the sound. Yes, it does. Be quiet. Like, stop. <laughs> I'm not having this argument anymore. Like, no, it's not an opinion anymore. It's like a fact. It does, in fact, like, because he, I'm sorry, I'm totally interrupting you, Carly. He, he, he makes the really good point that, like, you don't, he, you know, you hear with your ears but you listen with your mind or vice versa. You know, you could say the other thing. It's like none of your senses do anything. Your mind puts all that information together. So if you're watching something and listening to it, you can't help but put the visual input and the study proves it. So I always just like, dude, I'm knocking well, this argument out right now before my students are like. <laughs> <laughs> before they're able to think for themselves destroy yeah, them just <laughs> knock it out of the way. for me also I've, I've like long said that like i'm not so interested in like the audience like seeing legato in my marimba playing but like in order to connect a line that feels legato i need to feel like i'm playing legato like i can't play with staccato motions and and phrase as legato even if it's not actually like physically affecting my sound itself i think it's affecting the the phrasing the overall yeah. picture sure. but sorry probably i think we yeah. totally just like steamrolled you yeah thanks ben. Let's, let's back up for a second for anybody that doesn't know about this study or has no idea what we're talking about basically this study they, they had michael burrett play um, long and short notes on different parts of the marimba. And basically the, the result was that there's no audible difference in the decay, you know, the length of the note between the different types of strokes that he would use to play a shorter note or a longer note. Um, but that the subjects determined the length of the stroke primarily through the visual representation rather than the actual length. So that's why I say, I use the term like, it feels longer or it feels shorter, it feels more legato or more staccato. Um, and I like what Casey just said that you, I think you said listening with your mind. I like that a lot better than sometimes we think about listening with our eyes because that just sounds like 
lame and like we're not listening well enough but you're right that the mind puts all of these things puts it all together, together. Yeah. yeah but the it, it it was why i say it was a little disturbing to me to to you know think about this study and know like it did not affect the length of the note and of course it didn't but it did affect the listener's perception and like ben what you were saying if if it affects the way that i feel the music like that's enough because the way that i feel the music is going to affect the way that it's heard um so anyway, yeah, I think I think we've talked about it a little bit, but but I was thinking because this is the time of year, you know, we're always talking about articulations and lessons and how do you make this sound more staccato and how do you make this sound more legato? Um, who does anybody have any like other than what what Casey mentioned in that video, which I hope I hope we can all check out. But what what are your thoughts? How do you approach this in lessons? How do you talk about gesture as it relates to expression, especially on marimba? Like Ksenia said, I just squash it out and just say, like, look, you're wrong. We're not debating this. It's a scientific fact. No, but I try to I try to just explain these things, you know, of course, gent delicately. But it's like Sim uh, Simone Rubino said uh, just on the last episode, he said you've got to, like, have some kind of body language in your music, just like a conductor's there to show what's important and bring out expression, like a, a performer, whether a chamber performer or soloist. Like, yeah, you got to have some kind of body language to, like, you know, um, show everyone why this is interesting here, or I, I think Ayun puts it as show important points in a form. You know, you gotta you gotta portray those uh, th those moments, and and she's of course setting up the rest of the article, which is just saying like, hey, music is already inherently gestural. You don't need these special pieces to make something gestural. Of course, it already is. And I remember Alan Abel saying it years ago at a master class. Um, and his wife actually saying it too. She was saying, oh, I just love watching the percussionist. I've always loved watching the percussionist. Everyone loves watching the percussionist because there's something just so, I guess, basic about it's really nice to see exactly what's happening. Like it's nice to see exactly how the sound's being made. You can see like 100% cause and effect of, for, for what you're hearing. We're talking so much. Abby, tell <laughs> us about this stuff. Carly, yeah. so much. Well, I mean, some percussion instruments like the example with Burrett, you know, you definitely, uh, when we have a recording of it, it sounds the same when he's playing legato and, and you know, staccato or mercato. But other instruments, I think, like if we're playing bass drum, you do, there are going to be differences in sound. Um, so I would just talk to the students and have them play the all these various instruments and, um, you know, recognize that with different types of strokes, there's going to be different sounds that are produced. And so we need to apply that to all of our various instruments and yeah, seeing, and we, we're so much of a seeing instrument and we, you know, we need to show that to the audience. But when you were talking before Carly, um, something that really caught my attention in Ayun's article was, uh, you know, she talked first talks about these different gestures um, early on. And then when she brings the pieces up, when she talks about corporel, uh, and the um, what you have to do in corporel with some of the scratching and the padding and all of that, um, you, we can't always hear those little tiny scratches and those little tiny details. But when an audience member sees this motion, even if they can't hear it, they imagine it from you know a previous memory that they had, and that like really hit me. And that that's like incredible. That's um, like, you know, we're, we're making up that sound in our, um, in our head 
while it's happening because we've heard that sound before and we've seen that gesture before and because um, we've all scratched our heads before right yeah so, right. like we've heard it on ourselves you know, yeah many times yeah so the, yeah yeah that that just um really struck me as like it duh but we don't we don't think of it that way most mm -hmm. of the time yeah actually i wanted to ask Senya about this because for anyone that doesn't know, there's this like kind of like running joke that Ksenia only plays like Slovak. <laughs> uh, and, and, <laughs> no. But it's funny to me, like Ksenia, and there's there's been a few other people I can think of that it's like, I feel like practice like slow movements of Bach cello suites all day long and then turn around and play velocities. And it, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's like, how do you get the chops for that from playing Bach D minor prelude or something? Uh, but Ksenia, could you tell us about your work with this, uh, this idea of like legato playing gesture connection on your Slovak? Damn it. <laughs> you know what, I think it's a, it's a noble cause. I'll be known as a Slovak person. Um, I'm, I'm afraid to speak in this episode because I called chess pieces, chess figurines. So could we just like take all that stuff out? Obviously, I don't know English. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> I'm so figurine. sorry. The pawn's a figurine. We, you know, we call it a figurine in Serbian. I'm sorry. No, that's really cool. And you know what? Actually, when they're really elaborate and ornate chess pieces, they would be figurines. Ah, well, thanks. Now you make me feel better. No, I was totally, I was a dumbass. Um, anyway, how do I work on it? I mean, I really do think, I do a, a, a test with my students um, always to, because of course we talk about how our instrument or the marimba is inherently staccato, but I, I sort of make them turn around and do a blind test. Okay, I'll play a legato phrase and then I'll play a staccato phrase and you tell me, I won't tell you which one is which, you tell me how I played it. I and did that in a job interview. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. And the entire and audience is like, oh, I hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I really don't feel like it's only visual. And I also think, you know, what about people who with visual impairment? I mean, they can also experience this um, and, and hear it. So, I mean, for me, obviously, I think um, everything we do physically is how we um, make the, that, that's how we make the sound happen. So if your movement is with high velocity and sharp, your sound will be sharp. If you move as if walking through water, that's how your sound will be. Um, but you sort of, as everyone else has said, I'm not saying anything new, but listen first and then make your body create the sound that you wish. And that goes for playing a, a slow Bach. And for me, all of that is hyper-connected. It almost feels like a, like a dance um, that has no sharp movements in it. That's easy. I am, I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> Abby, was there anything else in the IUN article you wanted to share? <laughs> uh, there was this um, idea of conveying the, the story, showing the narrative uh, versus using the voice as an instrument. Um, and she brings this up. And this is something that, uh, you know, I, that I've not struggled with, but definitely think about, or I guess, you know, struggle with depending on the piece. Um, and that a lot of people have asked me about too, when I um, go places and present. Um, and, you know, it, it's not, oh, it's not always crystal clear. It depends on the piece. And I forget which, there was one of the pieces that she talks about how, oh, um, it was the one that the text was in French. Um, do you guys remember which one that was? The, the, uh, the, the sound yeah, watchers the globacar one is that yeah touche yeah touche um wait is, is touche in this one 
I thought it was Afrigis, the Sound Watchers. Oh, yeah, that, I think that's it. Tree, yeah, percussion tree. Um, right, and how part of it is it's telling a story, but then um, as the piece goes on, or in, in another area of the piece, uh, the text is used more in a rhythmic way, or more as like a percussive sound, as like an effect. And so it's you know, the text is has different purposes at different points in this piece, and in general, text in percussion, you know, can be used to tell a story like The Connection by James Rolfe, um, you know, or in other pieces like, like Touche, where you don't need to know what is being said to, you know, get the feel for the piece and, you know, have it be meaningful um, to you. And, and uh, that's, you know, why people can do that piece in, in that, in, uh, and not uh, be uh, speaking French and, you know, still understand what's going on about what's going on. Um, so yeah, I just think it's an interesting topic to sort of um, the narrative versus um, or you know and uh, the voice as an instrument and that sort of concept. Um, I think that's a super interesting topic, and this is something that Steve Schick talked about that when he um, did Touche, that he actually decided he was going to take time to learn the language as much as he could, which is so lovely and such a deep plunge into the music in order to be able to perform it as, as well as possible. However, I agree with you that uh, obviously we don't have to know the language in order to be able to enjoy this musical performance because the language has this musical quality and you can in fact pick up on emotion even if you don't understand the context but i would certainly encourage anyone who does have the time and the dedication to do what steve did because i think it does enrich one's um, experience it's wild that these pieces that ayun chose to share i think we all see them as very very different it's like yeah they sure, certainly all fit into the same genre but they everything they do is done in such a different way. I feel like they produce such a different result. And I just wonder if, okay, give it another hundred years of more pieces like this, will people look back and kind of go like, oh yeah, all that stuff like looks the same to them. <laughs> like when they seem so distinct to us, was like, I look at, you know, the, the classical canon from one particular time and I just hear, think, man, this music's all the same. You know, even when it's different, it's still there are more points that are the same than are different. Whereas in this, these pieces, I think, oh, there are more points that are different than are the same, you know? So I don't know. It's kind of cool. Uh, Carly, we should talk about what you dug up for us today. Yeah. Well, so I, I was thinking about for this week, I was thinking a lot about um, programming of contemporary music and especially how different orchestras have been handling this and maybe are handling this programming um, in, in current times, what's going on now. And one of the articles that I found, the first one is called When Artists Take Over Programming, Do Audiences Benefit? It's written by Ann Midget, who was a classical music critic with the Washington Post. This was about two years ago, August 2018. And I say was because I saw she had, had has since stepped down from writing for the Post, but she's, she's talking about the increasing popularity and prevalence of what she's referring to as artist curators. Um, who are basically prominent composers and performers who are given positions as artists in residence or maybe composer in residence or creative partner with orchestras. And we've seen it more and more. I think, you know, composer in residence has been along, around for a while, but these artistic director positions and, and these artists in residence positions maybe are becoming more and more popular, I think, as orchestras look at how do we, how do we program for the 20, 21st century. 
um, moving forward. So when I when I found this article, I was really looking for like different approaches. How are orchestras dealing with programming contemporary music? And I thought, great, this is what I'm looking for. I've heard about pop artists like Ben Fold serves um, as artistic advisor with the National Symphony and think like, oh, well, that's cool. Um, but I quickly found that the author is actually not too keen on this concept. Um, she does recognize a need for creativity and innovation in programming. Um, and in the overall concert experience, but she also expresses concern that just hiring an artist to, hey, you handle our curation, you handle our programming and what is the audience experience, it doesn't replace the organization itself having a really solid vision and direction and making sure everything's in line with that. So I think that was kind of her her beef there. She, she writes, performing arts institutions are recognizing they need vision to make it an increasingly tough market and artists have vision, but just going out and hiring artists is no replacement for the kind of institutional mission that makes vision work. Putting artists in these positions without thinking through their role in the larger organization risks undermining all their efforts and in some cases, ghettoizing contemporary music still further as something that lies outside the organization's main mission. And I was pretty shocked at, at her use of the word ghettoizing, um, even in 2018, but that's a whole, whole other issue and rabbit hole we could go down. Um, but I, I was a little curious, what are these artist curators doing to make contemporary classical music um, interesting, accessible and relevant and popular, you know, ideally. Um, and I found that there's a series of videos on the Kennedy Center website that features Mason Bates, who's probably a composer we've all heard of, um, very, very popular. And he's currently composer in residence there at the Kennedy Center. And so he's talking about there's three parts of curating or three parts of this position. Um, one is programming, of course, like what are we going to play, making sure there's diversity and variety and aesthetic and the size of the ensemble um, and the background of composer. I think we all agree those things are important. Um, production, which includes like lighting and stagecraft and use of the space and how are we sharing program information, um, maybe moving outside of like a typical, you know, booklet that you get and you read. Um, and also the platform, which is what the term he uses to talk about the entire experience from the moment you walk in the door to the moment you leave. And by you, I mean the audience. Um, so yeah, I think that that kind of gave me a, a better idea of what is this role, what is happening here, and it sounds like it sounds like this is a pretty important role. I don't imagine it's going away. Um, what do you all think about this? It kind of felt like bloated administration to me, like frustration. Like I, it, I, I feel like I'm always the odd person out because I think I agree with her for once. <laughs> I agree with the article. I'll like, what? Well, like, well, well, okay. Like, it made me wonder. Like, okay, if it, it almost seemed like a like, okay, so they hire someone to figure out who to hire. It's like, well, wait a minute. Like, what? What is? What's your job though? Like, your job is to hire someone to figure out who to hire. That's what what did you do before that though like i almost feel like it's like oh cool i'm going to hire someone to do the part of my job i used to do as administrator and then if it turns out bad cool it's not my fault it's not the organization's fault it's the artist's fault like that's what i wondered if what the frustration was um that's what i was hearing it's like wait a minute well if you don't do that what 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 do you do you know you're handing that off too like what what work do y'all do Who's ready to argue with Casey? Is Abby, Abby, are you ready? Well, I'm going to maybe agree a little bit, but it's it seemed like she didn't take uh, the next step and say, you know, what 
she wants or what, you know, what the solution is. And I was reading into the solution of being, um, you know, let's make a position for this type of artist curator, but you know, it's an actual position where the person is, you know, a part of the team, part of the, you know, the team with the orchestra or part of whatever this, the organization is. Um, and rather than hiring a new person every year or every six months or whatever it may be to be this artist director, artist curator, we're going to have this person on and they're going to be our person and they're going to curate all of these things going forward, you know, until they decide to quit or until they're fired or whatever. Um, and maybe we're not doing that because it costs more to do that. And so it's cheaper. You know, it's always about money. It always comes back to money with big organizations and it's cheaper to hire someone, you know, as a visiting person. Uh, so let's just have this person on for six months and, you know, they're not a real full employee and then we'll move on to the next person and it also looks more exciting and like it kind of is more exciting to then have a new person the next six months or the next year and then we'll just keep shuffling on that way um, but it probably yeah it probably costs less to do that than to have this full person on that would maybe be more beneficial for the organization as a whole. I think that uh, yeah I kind of agree, agree a lot with Abby on this the, I think the author's main beef is that it seems like they're sort of putting contemporary music into what I'll call an otherism, where it's like, oh, well, yeah, we need to do contemporary music. Uh, we'll we'll just hire someone to do that kind of on on an annual basis. But at the same rate, like I mean, these orchestras are conducted by, directed by, performed by people that went to Juilliard and studied Bach and Beethoven, and so to try and like get that classically trained person just like shoehorn in all of a sudden contemporary music by Mason Bates. I, I think you do need to hire an outsider to do that. Like I, I saw this thing a while back that was talking about contemporary music and we now perform a piece by John Cage or even Rite of Spring, which is a hundred years old and we call it contemporary new music. Like that John Cage 1930s is not new music anymore. Like third construction is not any by any standard considered new music anymore. It's progressive still, but it's not new music. And so I think the whole idea of newness and new music, it does require some sort of turnover. And can you imagine someone sitting in one of these positions for a career of 50 years? And at the end of 50 years, like, I mean, you know, some people were considered cutting edge for all 50 years of their career. Miles Davis comes to mind. But at the same rate, I think the idea of newness and cutting edgeness and youth, like, yes, it, it does need to be sort of a revolving door position. And like Mason Bates is a fantastic contemporary composer, but after except, you know, after five, 10 years of Mason Bates, like who else can we bring in to have a different voice? Uh, and, you know, it's like Mason Bates is, is fantastic. He's from Richmond, Virginia, where I'm from. So I'm very proud of that. But at the same rate, it's another straight white male. Like, let's get a diverse voice in there. And, you know, if you hire someone that is racially diverse or, you know, a female composer or, you know, someone to fill that role in a different way after, you know, five years of that, like it's, it's not new anymore. I think that there is an importance to, to swapping these positions out, but I, I kind of am on the same page. I think all of us are on the same page as like, she's, she's knocking them for trying something, but not providing any solution beyond that. It's like, well, what, what do you, what do you want them to do at that point? So I don't know. I just rambled for a bit, but hopefully it made sense. 
I was also going to add to, it wasn't a ramble, it was an excellent train of thought, Ben. Uh, but I was going to add something that I think is uh, really interesting, which is that we are so focused in, people, people think that, yeah, 1930s music is new, but yet if you pull out a movie or visual art or literature from that time, they're going to be like, this is so old, I cannot bear through this. It is just too much for my attention span. And I think that's so strange that music seems to be like the last living, like very leftover art form that somehow cannot keep up with its time. It, its current form does not seem to appeal to the most people, which most other art forms do. I learned music is the slowest. Music takes it the is. longest to catch up. It's actually like a hundred years late behind like architecture and literature and most, right. yeah, yeah, which is yeah, like crazy. introduction to con contemporary literature. All right, here's the grapes of wrath. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just thought it was weird. Like, like why, why do you need? I, I'm, I'm like when money is such an issue, and I get maybe okay if they're using Mason Bates as the big name to curate. Well, it's Mason Bates concert series, so it's selected by him. It's his taste. It's his flavor. Maybe they sell more tickets, but I also just—it also just seems like a move. Like, hey, this I can, I can take this money that we could use to, like, you know, help the organization in some other way, and I can have one less job to do because I can have someone else do all the programming and, you know, curate a whole thing. I think it's just a, a desire to also associate themselves with big names because that is a thing that people do, like bringing in Renee Fleming or whoever. And they are very smart and yeah. and very connected, which does help any organization. But of course, I think it's I think a lot of this might be political. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, Ksenia, I was thinking the same thing with the big names. That's a huge draw. And maybe an argument, too, for rotating, like, three years of this person, and then, hey, we have a new um, artist curator, whatever whatever the position is. Yeah, well, right. that big right. person goes on to the New York Philharmonic and then to the other big venue and so on, yeah. Are you guys really that affected? I think we've talked about this before, like, the order of something. Like, even in a single program, it certainly affects me some, but, like, like, do you think that much about the order when you're programming your own recital? Like, how much weight does that does that really? I do the for my I own get, sake. The more I do. Sorry, Ben. I, I said the older I get, the more I do. I feel like it's like okay, I have to start with something I'm super confident on that I can really knock out of the park, and I want to end it a certain way. But like, like how the only, the, the the biggest thing is like, is there any order I can put these in that'll make me play them better? That's one thing. And if some of them tie together, like, well, I can go this piece to that piece to that piece and, and not call for applause, that's cool. But it's not cool because the pieces are related. It's cool because it helps me perform them better. It's like, oh, I can take three pieces and turn it into a 30-minute chunk, and it works. Like, I like doing that, but it's not like, like people draw these connections like, oh, we've got a common theme in here. That's, like, not common at all. It's like, good, you know, you can find a common thing amongst anything, you know, but, but no, like find it and like, oh, that's the name of my recital, you know, but it's, I, I don't know. What, what do you guys, is it that big a deal? You know what I think about the theme? And I think we've had a similar conversation before the theme, even if it's something kind of general that like, oh, well, you could say this piece relates to gesture, something like if your theme is gesture, like you, we can relate a bunch of pieces to that, but in a way, all percussion music could be exactly. even then just having that theme makes the audience maybe have 
gesture in their mind as they're experiencing it. And maybe it draws them to notice and, you know, have different thoughts as they're experiencing the program. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. I just try to, if I, if there's a couple vibraphone pieces, I might not put those back to back unless, you know, there's a great transition that, you know, you would want to put the two vibraphone pieces back to back, but um, also like not having a really slow, long piece with another slow, long piece, like obvious things like that. I think I think more about the audience's, how the audience is going to feel and um, not so much how I'm going to feel, which isn't great but i want yeah i want them to have a good experience and not to be bored while they're sitting there listening to me if you know if i can kind of cut it up with something that's more lively and then something that's slower and then back to back to yeah like a movement piece so yeah breaking it up like that right i I guess i just feel like so much of what makes them enjoy it is just how well it's performed because i mean we've all seen just years of examples of like hey great piece in the hands of someone who doesn't play well, bad result, not so great a piece, or so we thought in the hands of the right person. You know, it'd be so cool to do an experiment one day, like get Yo-Yo Ma on the hook to premiere some short pieces and just try try to get people to write the worst things they possibly can. It's like, they're still gonna be good if Yo-Yo Ma's playing them. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's do like, it. That's just true. So it's like, it's all, like, I think feel like we spend so much energy in like, thinking out the main thing. And, I, and I, I sit on the Contemporary Music Festival Committee here at JMU, and we had Bright Shang last year. We've had, we've had a, lot of, a lot of cool composers here. And um, yeah, we put a lot of thought into this programming, but I, I always lean towards the preparation of the performer. It's like, okay, if we've got this, you know, our trombone professor really has said they want to do this piece and they've got it baked and it's awesome and it's ready. If someone's like, oh, but that doesn't really fit in with ma 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 ma, it's like, ah, all that, all that is trumped by the, the performance is awesome. And it's like, great, we should consider that. That's true. But none of that will matter if it's just a killer version of the piece, you know, like that should always come first, I think. That's true. But I think what Abby is saying also makes a lot of sense because you're putting someone through an hour long experience and you certainly don't want to feed them the same type of thing for 30 minutes and then another same type of thing. If you can have the contrast be split more evenly and be changed more frequently. Yeah, you're right. And also like the logistics, like, you know, want to with percussion, it's all about logistics. So if making that work is number one for me. probably all of us yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) i will say i mean for me the the older i get the the less interested i am in hearing what i'll call a degree recital where it's like all right well here's just like a collection of i got my marimba piece my timpani piece like what are you saying (laughs) like tell tell me some sort of story and i remember i was talking with derek tawaniak like a long time ago uh and he said something like i'm at the point where i would probably like play a themed recital at the expense of me playing well like I'm more interested in telling a story than proving my chops or something like that and of course he's a fantastic player I wouldn't I wouldn't knock his playing for that but I like at this point like there's so many interesting things to say I mean like just look at the political world that we live in today like can you give some sort of commentary on that can you give a black lives matter recital can you you know like something like that to me is is so interesting um but and then sorry i have this just completely unrelated other thought and i've been going crazy trying to find where i read this 
but uh, we were talking about especially orchestras doing new music and uh, one composer historically that is known for in his day being a, an absolute king of the classical repertoire as well as the contemporary repertoire is Leonard Bernstein. Uh, and there's this great article somewhere, I wish I could find it, or a little writing by Paul Lansky, and it talks about when uh, the New York Phil under Bernstein was premiering a piece by Milton Babbitt. And Lansky was, of course, a Babbitt student, and he said all of us were there in the rehearsal with their scores, you know, like watching Leonard Bernstein conduct Milton Babbitt, like what a, what a cool, like, place that would have been to be. So, I don't know, just a cool little factoid, I think. <laughs> Well, we did have a Facebook question, and it's from Michael Mortia. He writes, when you find yourself performing theatrical pieces, what are some of the ways you try to make a piece more approachable for the average listener? And I think this is, yeah, right in line with what we were just talking about. Now, this, this is, of course, a question for Abby. Yeah. Um, I think having program notes can be really helpful, and I think that it's always great to include those if you can. Um, and... It depends on the kind of the type of theatrical piece we were talking about uh, more narrative type language for text and uh, I tend to gravitate towards those kind of text theatrical type pieces I, I just prefer them I like sort of the storytelling part of it um, and so in that sense um, you know if you're wanting the piece to be more approachable, those are the type of pieces that may be more approachable because, you know, you're telling a story. It's, it's maybe not as kind of like going to sound as random if it's, you know, um, more sound based uh, uh, vocal part. And so then making your voice, um, you know, having a natural speaking voice is what is going to get that story to come across and, and um, you know, really be clear and, um, yeah, I think having a natural sounding um, voice and getting that story to really come across as a story and um, in your most um, like, you know, approachable speaking voice is, is what makes it uh, approachable. Um, and I think, it, I think it is good to think about what the audience would be interested in. Uh, if you're, if, if that's your intent, if you're going through school and you just want to learn different types of pieces and, you know, the focus isn't on who the, you know, who that audience is, it's, it's on you learning repertoire, um, you know, learn whatever you want to learn, you know, whatever you're interested in. But if you're, you know, going out and you're, you're going to perform at libraries and going to perform at community centers, you know, then that is a really great thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, one way to, to be approachable is to the, the way that you're using your voice, essentially. And, and it goes back to something you said earlier that as soon as you're using your voice or you're using your body in some way, like scratching and corporal, it's already approachable. And it's just it's just so powerful, even super strange pieces, corporal or, or the connection where somebody might be like, what is the story? Like, what's going on here? Um, you know, it's not really linear in the way sometimes that we expect. Um, I did want to ask you, Casey mentioned at the very beginning your your TED talk that you did where you performed a piece called All Your Thens for Now, and I thought it was super, super cool. Um, so I'd love if you tell us a little bit about this piece. And then also you talked in the TED talk a little bit about, I think, working with a theater professor on speech specifically. So how what what was what what were some of your big takeaways on that? And, and maybe that ties into with making the voice and, and what you're doing with your voice approachable. Yeah, um, 
really great piece. I encourage people to, to watch that and to play it themselves. Uh, vibraphone, it's vibraphone, speaking, and camera. Um, and I, at different points, I used my phone with um, a pedal. And then I, I forget if I actually ever used a real, I think I did use a real camera at one point with, all, with also like a pedal hooked up to it. Um, but uh, you know, you're manning the, the pedal of the vibraphone and also having to like get your foot over and click the pedal of the camera. So it's, it's like a multi-instrument at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, this, this piece is by Lawton Hall. I went to, I went to school with him at Lawrence University um, and uh, ended up getting this really amazing piece from him through a consortium project that I worked on with, uh, headed it with um, two other percussionists um, Alex Rolf and Caitlin King. She also, Caitlin King um, does a lot of theater pieces as well. Um, and we had a group of people behind us to get this piece to happen. Uh, and with working with the theater coach, um, it, I think it was just a couple sessions, uh, but she, um, it was mainly on enunciating more clearly and kind of getting my voice to project more. Um, and, you know, not so much about being like acty uh, or, you know, acting out certain elements of the text or anything like that, but just more about speaking, uh, having a more clear speaking voice. Um, and uh, I think that kind of relates to some of what Ayun was saying with just like, just do what the text says, like in Dresser, it's like, follow the instructions and just, just do that. And it's going to be great and do exactly what he says, lift up the chair, hit it down, play the notes. And then, you know, the humor is going to come across and everything's going to happen. And I mean, obviously, you know, I put some more emotion into the text than just that, but not making it like over the top and extra is, is kind of the, the way I try to go with a lot of these pieces is, is be clear and follow uh, her. Yeah. Her thing was like following the sentence structure of like how you would normally talk, like how a sentence, the, the rise and fall of our, nor our language as it is. And sometimes when people get on stage or they are performing, things get a little weird and like you go up at the end of the sentence when it, when it shouldn't. And so um, she pointed those things out to me when I was playing, when I was like, you know, playing everything for her. And, you know, she's like, why is that? It sounds like there's a question here and there shouldn't be a question. Um, so that was really, really great to work with her. And, and we can all do these things if we just, you know, record ourselves um, while we're playing. If you're playing a speaking piece and you record it and you're like, wow, my voice, it doesn't sound like a, a natural sentence at this moment. Um, and um forget where else I was going with that. But yeah, working with the, the coach was just great for, um, to, to speak more clearly for that piece and, to, and also taking that into other speaking pieces. Abby, how did you come to be invited to do that TEDx talk? I know that's a stage that a lot of, I, I think our listeners, you know, especially young students going on and trying to get their careers. I mean, that's a resume point a lot of people would like to have. How did that, how did that come to be for you? I, I just applied. Um, I yeah, applied through at Stony Brook. TEDx was coming to Stony Brook. Um, I imagine it goes to different universities at, for different years. Uh, I put an application, um, and when I found out, I think I only had a couple of weeks or maybe a month to prepare. Like once I um, knew that it was going to happen, and so writing the speech also was, um, you know, that little speech I say right before I play or that, you know, anyone, anyone who does a TEDx, whether or not it's music, the speech that they um, say 
was a big deal for me too, because I had never really done something like that. And so I uh, wrote a couple drafts of that. And I worked actually on that with um, the, uh, the music department director, the director of the Stony Brook music department um, and uh, worked on that with him a little bit. And then I think I may have also brought that speech and practiced that speech with the theater director too, because you know it's the same sort of thing. You want the speech to sound not all like rehearsed. And um, she, I, I forget if it was if it was Perry, the director, or if the theater director, but one of them said, Don't "Memorize the speech. You know, just kind of know the gist of what you're going to say, because if you memorize it, it's going to sound memorized. It's going to sound very rehearsed, and you're going to be up there like you know, very robotic." Um, so that was another big takeaway from from that whole experience. Wow, very cool. Well, hey, what what are you working on to close us out? What is uh, what's the next project in the in the oven for you, and what should we keep our eye out for? Um, I've uh, been learning a couple new pieces. Um, Molly Joyce has a new vibraphone with like five or six suspended symbols called Purity. So I've been working on that piece and um, another piece uh, called Marimba, uh, it's hard to say, Remember Marimba. Um, the composer's name is um, Wallen, is the last name, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and uh, then I've been um, uh, working with a string quartet in town in Knoxville and I just had a concert with them um, it's the Inner Voices String Quartet. There's a, a local group, but they're really great. And um, we're performing, or we performed this piece called uh, First in Flight. And the composer's name is uh, Dosia, D-O-S-I-A. And um, it, we're going to record this piece coming up soon uh, in two weeks or so. So that's what's on my docket right now. Cool. Well, that yeah. all sounds really great. And uh, geez, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been awesome to talk tonight. Yeah, congratulations on all the great stuff you're doing. And when I, I bumped into you online, I thought like, oh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. I need to have her on the show. So Appreciate it. Thank you, yeah, guys. Sure. Okay, see you all. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ksenia.